<clears throat> well, who is aware of something that's going on a little bit later today? Many of you might be excited about the Super Bowl. How many of you are going to a gathering or a party of some sort? Several of you. Anybody making like a chili cheese dip sort of thing? A couple of you, I'll, I'll be at your house. That's where I want to be. Um, people are excited about the Super Bowl. Every year it's, it's becoming almost like a religion, right? I remember reading an article <clears throat> about a man who had never missed attending a Super Bowl. He had missed all kinds of events, including one of his relatives' weddings, so that he could be at the Super Bowl. It had become a, a real passion for him. Millions of people will either be at the stadium or tuned in, around, gathered around a TV watching the Super Bowl. Uh, there will be excitement. There will, perhaps the losing team and their fans will shed tears. And I've seen it before, the winning team and their fans may shed tears. They're so excited, so happy about what is going on. But I want to tell you the truth. <clears throat> that doesn't even compare to what we are doing here and now. As we are gathered together to worship the Lord Jesus Christ, to hear from His Word. Now it takes eyes of faith to see this. It takes eyes of faith to understand this. Because everything we're doing seems so ordinary, and it is so ordinary. And yet we proclaim by faith that the Lord Jesus Christ is here among us. And we don't have all the glitz and fanfare that they'll have at the, the halftime show, nothing fancy going on, but we proclaim by faith Jesus is here. Do you believe that? In the proclamation of His Word, He is speaking to us. And the Super Bowl has nothing on that. So let's, let's turn our minds and consider what it is that we are doing here this morning as we go to him in prayer and as we read his word. Turn with me in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 5, 9 through 13. 1 Corinthians 5, 9 through 13. Paul says, I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters, since then you would need to go out of the world. But now I am writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he's guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler, not even to eat with such a one. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges the outside. Purge the evil person from among you. Our Heavenly Father, as you have promised to meet with us in the proclamation of your word and the <clears throat> practice of uh, the sacraments, we pray that we would have an awareness of this so that we would receive your word, not simply as spoken by man, but as spoken by God himself. I pray that you would, um, you would guard me from any error in preaching, I pray that you would hide me behind the cross, that Jesus Christ would be high and lifted up, that your people would be fed and nourished, that we would be informed, but also we would be moved to obedience. Uh, work in us this morning, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, have you ever been <clears throat> so eager to get the job done that you actually went about it in the wrong way? You were so ready to, to take on this task that 
you, you went ahead and started without realizing what it is you were supposed to be doing. So sometimes moms and dads can do this with Christmas presents, putting together uh, a basketball goal. You're so, you, you've got to get it done. You've got to get it done before they wake up maybe the next morning. So you just plunge right into it and you do something wrong and you have to start all the way over again. might happen with bookshelves, uh, putting together furniture. I remember a, a test in high school that I took in auto tech class and um, I didn't read the instructions and I should have. So it was just two pages front and back. It was somewhat difficult, not too bad, but I, I went ahead and filled it out, did all the tests and then turned back to the front and saw the instructions which said something to the effect of, you do not have to take this test. Simply write your name at the top of the page and write 100 on the top of the page and your score will be 100. And many of us in that class didn't read the instructions and so we got a lower grade than 100. Instructions are important. It's important to understand instructions so that we would know, not only be zealous to to work and to, to live for the glory of God, but so we would know how to do so. Well, apparently, we read in 1 Corinthians 5 that the Corinthians misunderstood one of Paul's instructions. There's a previous letter, evidently. We don't know anything about it. But uh, Paul wrote to the Corinthians previous to this letter. And evidently, he was addressing some of the same issues. Uh, How to associate with, with unbelievers and believers. What to do about sin in your midst. Uh, sexual immorality and other sins. He's having to, this is not his first go around with the Corinthians. He's having to address some of the same things over and over with them. And evidently, a command in the previous letter was something to the effect of do not associate with immoral people. Do not associate with immoral people. But the Corinthians misunderstood. We don't know what they're why they misunderstood. Maybe Paul was unclear in his instruction. Maybe, as is often the case, uh, the Corinthians heard what they wanted to hear, and so they went about it their own way. But whatever the reason, they misunderstood this command, do not associate with immoral people. And as a result, they misapplied. They misapplied his instruction. Apparently, what the Corinthians began to do is avoid uh, unbelieving, immoral people. People who were in all sorts of serious sin, but they were unbelievers. And the Corinthians heard this command from Paul and decided to isolate themselves from them. What they were doing was ignoring their own sin while pointing the finger at those outside. Now, there's some nuance here because we know that in some sense the Corinthians were assimilating to the culture. You remember that? They were assimilating in that they were all about prestige. They were all about honor. They wanted to be thought of as highly in their culture. And yet at the same time, it appears they were somehow avoiding those who were living sinful lives while ignoring their own sin, the sin in their own church. So maybe you've, you've done this before, maybe. Um, it's happened on occasion that my keys will go missing. Uh, maybe this is the case with you. Your keys will go missing. Uh, a book that you were reading goes missing. 
Uh, the remote control, does anybody ever lose a remote control? And usually my tendency in those circumstances is to point the finger at everybody else in the whole house before I point back to myself. You, so you start interrogating people. Have you touched my keys? Have you messed with my book? Where is it? It was laying right here on the counter, and I didn't touch it. Somebody else moved it, and it must have been you. And they say no, so you go to the next person. You interrogate them until you finally search your car and you find that book right where you left it the previous day. We are all too often eager to point our finger at other people rather than to look at our own sin, rather than to look at our our own blame. And this is seems to be have been the case with the Corinthians. They were eager to see the sins of others outside of their fellowship, but we've already seen what they've been ignoring. This man caught in serious sin and they just let it go. They just let it fly. They totally ignore the sin within their own church. And this is a tendency of Christians, isn't it? Is it isn't this often what we're known for? We're often known for looking at those on the outside of the church and calling out their sins. Maybe I'm guilty of this from time to time. Preaching against the sins of the culture while we ignore our own sins. It can be our our tendency as churches. And it can be our tendency as individuals as well. It's much easier to identify the sins of your spouse than it is to identify your own sins. It's much easier to identify the sins of your parents and how they discipline you in anger rather than to recognize the sin that you are guilty of. But let us not be like this. Let us not be eager to be aware of other sins and ignorant of our own. Let us be eager to recognize the sin that lies within our own lives. Now, I don't mean this in an overly obsessive way where we're always uh, examining ourselves and it drives us to despair. But we should be more aware of our own sins than the sins of others. We should be intimately familiar with our own sins rather than ignoring them. So let us not be like the Corinthians in this and their misunderstanding. Rather, let us be acquainted with our own sins that we might repent of them, that we might turn again to Christ clinging to Him by faith, and that we might treat others graciously. Because we know how much sin is in our own lives, we can therefore extend grace to others, recognizing in many ways they are no different than we are. Really, the Corinthians' misunderstanding makes me wonder too how much have we misunderstood when it comes to relating with and associating with outsiders, with unbelievers who are sinful. We should consider, have we misunderstood what it means to be engaged with unbelievers who are outside of our fellowship, who are at work, who are in the marketplace, who are at school? Have we considered rightly what it means to be an effective witness for Christ? So first we see the Corinthians misunderstand. Notice now Paul's correction. Since they misunderstood, he corrects them. And you've got to think it's kind of a facepalm moment for Paul, right? You know what facepalm is? Something happens, somebody does something, and you're like, are you serious? Did you really do that? So he's looking at the Corinthians, and he's saying, how did you misunderstand this? I told you not to associate with immoral people. I didn't mean unbelievers. 
you knuckleheads. I meant those who are professing believers caught in some serious sin. So there are two parts to this correction. The first part of the correction is that he didn't mean unbelievers. You see what he says there. Verse 10. Not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world. And he he extends this. he, He broadens the categories. So he's not only including those who are sexually immoral, he's also including those who are greedy, those who are yearning after more and more and more, wanting to fill up their lives with stuff, with swindlers, those who, who cheat others, who take advantage of others, who are always trying to get a buck, and, and by making money, they're making it off the backs of others, swindling them out of their own. Or idolaters. Those who worship other gods. Since then, you would need to go out of the world. So he didn't mean unbelievers. That would be impossible. Right? Because we're with them all the time. That would be like telling Tracy not to associate with people who like coffee. That's not going to work. It's impossible. Uh, So in the marketplace, the Corinthians would have been rubbing shoulders with unbelievers who were immoral in a variety of ways, sexually, uh, with greed, idolatry, swindlers. They'd be associating with them all the time. With their neighbors, those in their community, they would be rubbing shoulders with them. Or even consider, what if a Corinthian heard the gospel? They were an idolater. They heard the gospel of Jesus Christ crucified for sinners, and they were saved. By the power of the Spirit. That's how, that's how people are saved, right? By the proclamation of the gospel, the Spirit's working underneath and changes their heart. They were saved, but the rest of their family were still idolaters. And unless they were estranged or cast out, they would still be associating with them on a regular basis. And it's the same with us today. It's impossible for us to, to not associate in some way with unbelievers. Otherwise, we'd have to go out of the world. We can't help but associate with unbelievers in the marketplace, in our neighborhoods, even some of us in our own families. And so we've we got to think, what are the options then in considering our relationships with unbelievers, our association with unbelievers? Well, there are, there are two options that get it wrong. One is isolation, Uh, so withdrawing, as it seems, at least in some sense, the Corinthians doing, withdrawing into our our huddle so that we can protect ourselves, like an armadillo curling up into itself so that nothing can get inside, nothing can affect it. This has been tried, by the way, with monasteries, right? You go into a monastery, and uh, everybody in there is a believer, you, you pray regularly, a lot throughout the day. You read scripture. You work uh, tending a garden or making wine or something. And, and you're all together in this holy huddle and nothing can get in and infect you with the sin. What's the problem with that? How are you going to get rid of the sin that you bring in with you? That's what Martin Luther learned. You can wall off all the sin in the world and yet there's the sin that springs from within your own heart. It doesn't work. The other option is assimilation. So we can isolate ourselves thinking somehow we could 
wall ourselves off, or we could assimilate to the culture. We know we can't get away from the culture, and so we simply assimilate to the culture. This would be more like a chameleon, which takes on the color of his culture. He takes on the, uh, and not only the culture, it would mean taking on the sinful aspects of our culture as well. And some have done this throughout history as well. Has said, well, we need to reach the culture, so we need to be a part of the culture. And in doing so, they've actually assimilated into the sinful aspects of the culture as well. So the problem with both of these, the problem with the first isolation, I've already mentioned part of it, is that, first of all, this is not our calling to be isolated from the world. If it, if it was our calling to be isolated from the world, we'd have to consider, well, why didn't God just save us and then zap us up into heaven automatically? Why has he left us here in the midst of all this sinfulness, in the midst of all this ungodly culture, if we're sim- simply supposed to be isolated from it? And also, of course, uh, we have to recognize sin is not physically infectious. It's not physically contagious. Simply by associating, rubbing shoulders with others, we don't become sinful. It will take wisdom, no doubt. There may be times where you will need to separate yourself from culture because you're tempted in a particular area or you're vulnerable in a particular area. But you don't catch sin just by associating with other people. When Jesus' disciples uh, didn't wash their hands, before they ate, people pointed at them and said, y'all are doing it wrong, this is, this is sinful the way you're doing it. And Jesus taught, no, it's not what goes into the body physically which defiles a person, which makes him dirty. What is it that makes a person dirty? It's, it's all the thoughts and desires that spring up from a person's heart. This is what defiles a person and not goes, what goes into a person. And in a similar way, we are not defiled by associating with sinful unbelievers. We are defiled through our own sin. So the problem with isolating ourselves is it's not our calling and sin is not physically contagious. But then there's also the problems with assimilation. This is not our calling either. Our calling is not to become so identified with the culture that we take on sinful aspects of the culture. We are to be a distinct people. We are to be a holy people. That means set apart from the world. So how does, how does this happen? How are we set apart? <laughs> the people of God in the Old Testament were chosen by God, the Scripture tells us, as His own particular possession, that they would look different than the rest of the culture. They would still be surrounded by other nations, but there would be something distinct about them. And in the same way, there is something distinct about the people of God in the midst of this ungodly world. First Peter chapter 2, verse 9, we read, But you are a chosen race a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. This is our calling. Once you were not a people, 
but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Well, how have we come to be this distinct people? How have we come to be a part of this holy people? How have we come into God's family? How have we become God's sons and daughters? Well, we've become God's sons and daughters through faith in Jesus Christ because He chose neither isolation nor assimilation. He could have chosen isolation, isolation theoretically. He was in heaven with God from all eternity. And yet the scripture says he did not consider equality with God a thing to be grasped, to be clung onto, but he put that aside and became a man. He humbled himself and took on the form of a servant, entering into his creation. Not isolation, he entered into, engaged with his creation. But he didn't assimilate to it. While he did take on the cultures that were around him, he never took on the sinful aspects of his culture. He remained pure. He went through this life as every one of us do, tempted in various ways and yet without sin. And that's why he is our faithful and true high priest. It is by his active obedience in living perfectly under the fatherhood of God and his passive obedience, suffering the sins of his people, this is how we have been brought into the family of God. This is how we have been made a distinct and holy people. So in Christ, you are set apart. You are holy. Not because of anything you have done, but because everything Christ has done on your behalf. He has set you apart by his grace. And now he calls you to live in light of this identity we have in Christ. So our calling is similar to that of Jesus. It is not redemptive in the same way. We cannot save anyone by our work, by our death or resurrection. And yet, as those who are Christians imitating Christ, we are to engage in the world without adjusting to the world. Engagement without Adjustment to the sinful way of living or association without assimilation into the world. We are to engage. So you are to engage with your neighbors who are unbelievers, if, even if they are caught up in serious sin. You are to engage them and yet not partake in their sin. You are to engage them with love and compassion and witness and yet, yet remain distinct from them. It requires personal wisdom and integrity. It requires wisdom as a community of faith. So we're not imagining that we all do this as individuals without any relationship to our church. We help one another in these things, think through these things with wisdom so that we do not fall into assimilating with the sinfulness of our culture. So that's the first part of his correction. He didn't mean unbelievers because there's a role to play in our relationship with unbelievers. Engagement without adjustment. But the second part is, I meant don't associate with those who go by the name brother and are taking part in serious sin. Verse 11, but now I'm writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality. And he goes on and adds more categories. Some of them are the same as the previous categories. Greed or idolater, 
A reviler is someone who is abusive in their speech towards others. A drunkard, someone who is addicted to alcohol and getting drunk, who will not put it away. A swindler, again, someone who swindles people out of their money, cheats people out of their money. He says not even to eat with such a person. So what Paul is saying here, here is what I meant. Here's what I meant in my instruction not to associate with immoral people. One who professes faith in Christ with his mouth, with his words, but his life professes faith in his own selfish desires. He's a living contradiction. He's a hypocrite. When one's stated belief doesn't match up with his actual practice, then you have to consider the possibility of hypocrisy. So one example throughout our history, as in American history, is that of slavery and how Christians responded to slavery. Many pastors and many Christians stood silently when slavery was going on, even supporting it and saying, this is defended by the Bible. This is a biblical practice. Look here at uh, Philemon. This is a biblical practice. We shouldn't get away from this. We should continue practicing slavery. Uh, And yet there were some who stood up to this. There were some who stood up to this hypocrisy and would have nothing to do with it. Um, we, we know well of Charles Spurgeon's preaching, the Prince of Pre- Preachers. I have several volumes of his sermons in my library. <clears throat> what often we don't know, though, is that he was vehemently opposed to slavery in Great Britain. He says, I do from my inmost soul detest slavery. And although I commune at the Lord's table with men of all creeds, Yet with a slaveholder, I have no fellowship of any sort or kind. Whenever one has called upon me, I have considered it my duty to express my detestation of his wickedness. And I would as soon think of receiving a murderer into my church as a man-stealer. This is an example of Charles Spurgeon applying this principle here in 1 Corinthians 5 to the practice of of slavery and do you know how people responded to him especially in america one i think it was a newspaper in north carolina said we will have no part in distributing his sermons anymore people christians throughout the south throughout america rejected spurgeon because of his views on slavery he was standing up in opposition to what he saw as the hypocrisy of christians and christian pastors on this particular point And this will have to be our practice as well. It's not enough to simply believe these things in theory. We must apply them to our lives. What will it mean for us to remain distinct in our culture and prophetically call out sin, hypocrisy within the church? Now, nuance is needed here when we talk about associating or not associating with those who go by the name brother and yet are guilty of sin. Because every one of us has sin, right? So do we just stop associating with each other, wall it into ourselves? I'm the only pure one, and so I can't associate, I can't even associate with myself. What do I do? Right? 
this is not, Paul does not mean that we are to avoid any brother who sins. And so imagine you're at a cookout at Bob's house. Nobody here is named Bob, right? We're good on that. You're at a cookout at Bob's house. He's grilling some burgers on on the grill, and he burns his hand on the grill, and he lets uh, a cuss word fly. What are you to do with that? Are you to uh, immediately pack up your stuff and, and get out of his house? I'm not associating with you, you sinner. Right? Is that how you respond? Now you might say a word to him, not brushing it under the sin. You might uh, correct him or encourage him. Uh, you might <clears throat> do a little digging later. But if you found out that Bob was a reviler, if he verbally abused his wife and children on a regular basis, and you approached him about this and he said, I don't see anything wrong with it. I'm being the head of, head of my family. I'm doing what the Lord has called me to do. If he continued in unrepentance in that serious and public sin, he was known as a reviler. He was known as a verbal abuser of his family. Well, that's when you say, I cannot even associate with you in good good conscience. Paul says, don't even eat with such a one who refuses to repent. So this is a serious, publicly known sin, an open, flagrant, and unrepentant sin. So someone who refuses to turn away from this serious and public sin, you are to have no association with them, Paul says. This is a hard word, isn't it? And yet we see how this works out in practice with Charles Spurgeon. How many of us would say he was wrong in doing that? No, he's absolutely right in doing that. Not even sharing a meal with them, he said. So this applies not only to the Lord's Supper, it would include Uh, refusing some or barring someone from the Lord's Supper, but it would also include our personal relationships with them, being careful not to to give the impression that we endorse their behavior. Because really, isn't that what church membership, in, in a sense, is? As we join a church, what we are doing as, as the elders hear professions of faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, as uh, the elders watch a person's life and see how it matches up with their profession, what we are saying as a church when we welcome new members is, to the best of our ability, we can affirm that you are a Christian. We can affirm your profession of faith in Christ. But when you remove someone from fellowship, when you say, because of some unrepentant sin, we are going to have to remove you from fellowship, we're going to have to remove you from membership in the church, you're not saying you know definitively this person is not Christian. Rather, you are removing this positive affirmation that, yes, you can say their profession of faith is credible. And this is what Spurgeon was doing in this example. And this is what Paul calls us to do when it comes to associating with immoral brothers or sisters, those who go by the name of Christian and yet will not repent of their sin. This is Paul's correction. So that's two parts of that correction. But notice also Paul's reasoning. What are the, what are the reasons behind these actions that we're supposed to take? <clears throat> Look at verse, uh, verse 12. He says, For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges the outside. Purge the evil person from among you. In other words, the church has no jurisdiction over unbelievers, no jurisdiction to judge unbelievers. Paul puts it in the form of a question, but the answer is unmistakable. 
What do I have to do with judging outsiders? Nothing. I have absolutely nothing to do with judging outsiders. And yet, isn't this our tendency, as I've said before, to judge those outside the church? To look upon them in self-righteousness, thinking that we are better than them, as though somehow we contributed to our salvation. We are saved by grace. It's been said the only thing we contributed to our salvation is the sin that made it necessary. We are saved completely by His grace. We have done nothing to deserve His mercy. Yet He's given it to us. And so we have no jurisdiction to judge outsiders. Though the tendency is to assume the role of judge rather than that of friend or servant or witness. Have you noticed that? When you see someone, an unbeliever, who is guilty of some serious sin, isn't your tendency to become their judge? Rather than to consider, how can I be a friend to this person? Or how can I be a servant to this person? How can I be a faithful, compassionate witness to this person? We have not always had a good track record in doing this. And one particular example where we have a poor track record is with homosexuals, with those who practice homosexuality. So what is, our, what is our default posture sometimes toward those who practice homosexuality? To shun them, to avoid them, to treat them as less than persons, to treat them as less than humans. And what, is our, what role do we assume over them but that of judge? When we should be assuming the role of friend or servant. Or witness. So what, is it, what does it take to draw someone to consider Christ and his claims? I've told you the story before about Rosaria Butterfield, who was a university professor um, in a homosexual relationship, an atheist. What did, t- what did it take for her? Do you remember? What he took was a pastor connecting with her, I think, through email or social media or somehow, and becoming a friend to her and her partner. He and his wife said, come over to our house for dinner. And they, they made it a practice. They did it more than once. Let us host you. Let us show you hospitality. Let us show you what it means to be a follower of Jesus. And they showed her compassion. They showed her friendliness, even though they were opposed to her relationship, her her practice, they assumed the role of friend rather than judge. That's what it takes. Now, it doesn't mean that every circumstance will turn out like this. We know that that's not the case. And yet, what would it look for you? What would it look like for you? Think about those who are unbelievers in your own life. Maybe you know their, their lives are a wreck. And they are involved in all sorts of sins. What would it mean for you to become their friend? To assume the role of friend? To assume the role of servant? How can I serve this person in love? How can I serve this person for the sake of Christ? Because isn't this what Jesus did? Isn't this... How Jesus saw other people. He didn't isolate himself. He didn't assimilate himself to the culture. But when he encountered the Samaritan woman at the well, he didn't assume the role of judge over her. Although he could, if anyone could assume the role of judge, it would be Jesus. 
His disciples would have been ready to pass on the other side to avoid her altogether. But what does Jesus do? He sits down with her. He begins a conversation with her. He treats her as a person. He didn't, uh, he didn't endorse her sin. He didn't partake in her sin. He remained, a dis- he remained distinct. And yet he engaged her for the sake of her salvation. And she went home proclaiming to her town, come meet this man who knows everything I've ever done. Maybe he's the Messiah. Or when he was reclining at the table with other Jews, other Pharisees, and a, a sinful woman came up to Jesus and began washing his feet with her tears and with her hair. And the other men around the table said, don't you know who this is? Assuming the role of judge over her, don't you know what kind of woman this is? You should isolate yourself from her. You should push her away. You should assume the role of judge over this person. And Jesus could have. He is God Almighty in human flesh. But he doesn't. What does he do? He receives her gift with thanks. And says, she loves much because she has been forgiven much. He knew that underneath her act of service was a response to Jesus in repentance and faith. And he accepted her. What would it look like for you to take the role of friend and servant and witness rather than judge? It's not in our jurisdiction to judge unbelievers. But the second part of Paul's reasoning is it is in our jurisdiction to judge insiders. <clears throat> he forms it in, He says it in the form of a question again. Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? Assuming yes, it is. Of course, uh, so we have the responsibility to judge open, unrepentant sin within the church. The objection might come out. Well, Jesus said, judge not, lest you be judged. Well, Jesus said... Um, who are, you to take, who are you to take the speck out of your brother's eye when you have this log in your own eye? Some Christians might quote that and say, see, you're not supposed to judge anybody at any time. This is wrong for you to judge. Well, that's really a misreading of Jesus. Jesus is saying we are not to judge a person in self-righteousness, but we can discern for their good a sin that they have. He does say, take the log out of your own eye first. Then what? Then take the speck out of your brother's eye. So uh, point out your brother's sin all the while recognizing your own sin, the, own, the, the depth of your own sin. Uh, these, these aren't teaching there's no place for judgment or discernment. Rather, there's no place for self-righteous judgment. Any, any judging we do must be for the actual benefit of other people and not for the building up of our own self-esteem or self-righteousness. Jesus doesn't contradict himself. And so when he says, judge not, lest you be judged, he's not contradicting himself when he says in Matthew 18, let the person be to you as a tax collector or, un- or a sinner who refuses to repent of their sin. And really, this is Jesus' voice in 1 Corinthians 5 as well. You might have a red letter Bible with, which highlights the words of Jesus, but this, this whole Bible, are the, this is the word of God. Right? These are, we don't contradict. Jesus doesn't contradict himself within his word. And so it is in our jurisdiction to judge insiders for their good, that they would turn from their sin, that they would trust again in Jesus, that they would repent of their sins and cling to Christ. 
Well, you might be thinking, where's God in all this business? It just seems like a bunch of stuff we're doing. Is God at work in the midst of any of this? And I would say yes. So let me point out in closing four ways God is working in this. You say four ways? It's already 11. Oh, wait. Yeah, they'll be quick. First, God is protecting his people in this. Right? God is protecting his people. Don't you know a little leaven leavens the whole lump? God is at work and he's using the means of us sharpening one another to protect his church, to keep us pure and undefiled. God is, number two, preserving his people in this. We believe that while Christians may fall into serious sin from time to time, they may go through seasons where they're falling into serious sin, and yet we believe they were, those who are truly regenerated by the Spirit of God will never fully and finally go away. And so if a believer is removed from membership because of unrepentant sin, we will find out one day if they are regenerate. God will use that removing, that church discipline. I've heard it work before. I've heard it happen before. God removes that terrible act, the the somber and serious act of removing one from fellowship in order to, to bring them to repentance, to break their hearts over their sin, that they might see what a treasure Christ is and forsake their sin. God is preserving his people. Third, God is purifying his people. He's, he's making us clean. He's making us new. Day by day, the Spirit is working in us. And through these means of holding one another accountable, He is working to, to purify His church. Because one day, He will present His bride to Himself in splendor, without blemish or spot or wrinkle or any such thing. We will be a beautiful bride for His possession and fourth, God is providing a witness through his people. The, the culture around the Corinthians wouldn't have even tolerated the sort of sin the Corinthian church was putting up with. So assimilating to the culture in all of its sinfulness does not provide a witness to the surrounding culture. What witness would it provide? Neither does isolation provide a witness to the culture around us. Both of these fail. An isolated church has no witness to the world. An assimilated church has no witness to the world. But one that is engaged and yet not assimilated to it provides a beautiful witness to the world. Think about that as our church. And think about that for you individually, what that will mean for you. To personally engage in the life of unbelievers and yet remain distinct from the world. It's all too easy for us to unintentionally isolate ourselves from unbelievers. Right? We, we get caught up in our own homes or in our schools or in our churches. And we're, we're huddled to ourselves without having inter, any interaction with unbelievers. And yet it's going to take some initiative for us to engage with unbelievers and yet remain distinct from them. Uh, <clears throat> James Brown, not the singer. James Brown is a commentator, a sports commentator. You'll often see him before football games talking with guys like Michael Strahan and Terry Bradshaw. I read an article about him recently uh, in which it said he is a pastor. And it seems, from what I read, he is an evangelical pastor. It seems he's a good pastor. So he has this dual role of sports commentator and, and pastor. And in the article, it talked about how do you have this relationship? You have this you have these associations, you have this role as sports commentator, you have this role of pastor. How do, you, how do those things work out? 
How does your faith play out on the set before football games? And it, it, seemed, like he, it seemed like he was dealing with it as Paul would have him to deal with it. Remaining distinct from any of the sinful practices that go on around the set or in football and, and providing a faithful witness. And so he told a story about uh, one time Terry Bradshaw was having some difficulties of some sort. And he didn't elaborate on what kind of difficulties. But Terry Bradshaw knew that James Brown was a Christian. He knew he was different than the other people around. He knew there was something different about him. He knew that he loved Christ. He didn't beat people over the heads with his faith. And yet he was, he was open and honest about it. He tried to live faithfully as a faithful witness to others. And so Terry Bradshaw said, after, after this game, could you come over to my house and pray for me? Could you pray for me in the midst of this? What, what might it look like for you to assume that role of friend and servant and witness to unbelievers around you? Let's pray together.